Well, I'm excited that uh, that everybody is here with us this morning. We know that when the sun shines in Alaska, it's difficult to get people to come indoors. Uh, but I see a, a room full of committed followers of Jesus who have set aside the natural dose of vitamin D to come in and get the word of the Lord administered to them today. Vitamin O. What is it? Vitamin O. Vitamin B. Oh. <laughs> Hopefully it'll be some vitamin HS, because the Holy Spirit is what you want. You don't want O. <laughs> My wife will tell you that. <laughs> Well, I got to let you guys know that this Friday is a worship night. It's going to be an event that's going to be hosted at Radiant Church. I would just challenge everybody in the room to take a look at your calendar. I know that life is busy, but if you can move some events around or if you find that that evening, Friday night, is open for you, I would challenge you to just plug in the opportunity to attend that worship event at Radiant Church. It's going to start at 7. Yeah. And the reason that I would challenge you to do that is because that will give you all week to think about somebody that you may know who is on the cusp of potentially attending church or auditing Christianity. And I would say invite that person to go to this event with you. Why would we do that? Well... It's going to be a great opportunity for them to witness the church universal coming together in a moment of unity because there's going to be about four or five churches represented there. Why else would we do that? Well, it's going to be an opportunity for them to see the church participate in the Lord's Supper because they do communion at these worship nights. So that always causes good conversation. What does that mean? Why do you do that? Can you talk to me about that? And it's a great opportunity to preach the gospel. Another reason why we would do that is because it allows them to see that prayer is simply communication with God because people will be praying and then the reading of the word is also going to be something that we're going to do there minus the act of preaching a sermon. So they're not going to be forced to sit still and to hear or endure 30 or 45 minutes of a message that they may not actually comprehend because they don't have the context for understanding. So this is a great entry level like experience for the person who may be auditing Christianity or thinking about attending church. And it gives you the opportunity to extend an invitation to them and then to take them there and then to tell them, hey, if you enjoyed this, I'd like you to come try church on Sunday morning out with me sometime. And you can always add, it doesn't have to be this week, but when you're comfortable, let me know. We'd love to have <clears throat> So the worship night is this Friday, 7 p.m. at Radiant. That's my challenge to you guys. Be thinking about that during the week. For those of you who are here with us for the first time, I just want to say thank you for being here. And for those of you who call this church your home, an equal um, act of gratitude is extended to you as well. We're grateful to see everyone in the room today. My name is Matt Overlander. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And we just want you to know that we're grateful that you decided to be with us today. For those of you who have been here week after week, you're already familiar with the reality that we are working our way through the book of Jonah. We've been making our way through Jonah slowly but surely, and this is going to be the eighth sermon in the series. And so we're going to turn in our Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. You're looking for verses 4 through 10. Jonah chapter 3, 
verses 4 through 10. If you don't have a Bible and you want one, raise your hand right now and let me know and we'll get you one. The text will be on the screen for those who are going to be reading from a different translation and want to see how the English translations vary. I'll be reading from the ESV. You guys read from whatever Bible it is that you have. Let's get the text up on the screen. Beginning in Jonah, chapter 3, verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Let's just stop right here. Anybody understand the significance of 40 days? 40 days. Someone said 40 days in the desert. What, what, what else? The flood. What else do we got? Jesus in the wilderness. Somebody said that. We've got Moses on top of Sinai. No food, no water. Moses had 40 years as well in the Pharaoh's court in the wilderness and then leading the nation. That's right. So there's not just 40 days expressions. There's 40 years expressions. 40 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. This term right here is interesting because in the Hebrew, it can mean overthrown as in destroyed and or annihilated. It can also mean overturned as in the people having a turn of behavior. So interesting that Jonah's proclamation says 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Is it going to be destroyed? As in overthrown, or is it going to be overturned, as in the people turning from their behavior? We know what Jonah wants. Read chapter 1 and look at his attitude, and read chapter 4 and look at his attitude, and it's very easy to come to the conclusion of what it is that Jonah is hoping to see. So Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Notice this was not just a decision of the king. He didn't just immediately get up off the throne when the word reached him. He actually had a little powwow with the city's governors. They came to a decision. They had a proclamation written. They issued the proclamation. And then he got up off his throne. Because you don't make proclamations and decisions when you're sitting in mourning. He issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. Now how do you get the animals who are grazing in the ancient Near East to give up eating and drinking? You what? You move them. You move them. You put them in pens. What do you think? Tom says, what do you think the animals do physically when you break their course of habit? They mow. They mow. That's exactly right. I actually called my friend who's a beef cattle farmer down in Oklahoma, and I said, hey, when you break the feeding habits of your cows, 
of your bulls and of your other livestock, do they get verbal? And he said, well, that's a difficult question. He said, not just when you remove the food, but when you break their everyday habits, they have the tendency to get verbal. What does this teach us, you think? I think it teaches us that the animal kingdom is more quick to respond to God than the humans that he created on earth. By decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? I love that line. Yeah. Who knows? Perhaps God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. I want you to look at this verse and I want you to think of the sermon that we had in the series on conditional prophecy. Yeah. And I want you to take seriously what it is that the author said. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. How seriously do we read the text here in the church, saints? Well, we're about to find out. Before we dig into our study this morning, I want to take a moment to remind everyone that in the close of our last sermon in the Jonah series, that would have been Jonah sermon number seven, I argued that Jonah's compliance to the word of God in the opening of chapter 3 was totally superficial in nature. He had zero desire to actually do what it was that he was doing. We used the illustration of the parent who looks at their child and says, stand in the corner or sit down on the chair. And the child looks at the parent and smiles. The parent is like, why are you smiling? I'm punishing you because I'm standing up playing with my toys in my heart. <laughs> That's a good picture of how Jonah felt as he was carrying out the actions that God had called him to do in the first three verses in Jonah chapter 3. Actually said that it would be required of us to read Jonah chapter 3, verse 1 through 3, in isolation from the rest of the book if we were to embrace the idea that Jonah had somehow been reformed in his thinking from chapter 1 to chapter 3. And we don't do that around here. We don't isolate portions of the text to try to prove a point. We read the text in its context. That's our responsibility to read the text in its context. And it's my opinion that to properly interpret the actions of the prophet Jonah in chapter 3, we must read what it is that he's doing in the light of chapters 1 and chapters 4 and all that falls in between it. If context determines meaning, saints, then it's easy to see that Jonah's attitude remains negative through and through in the narrative. So it's with this reminder that we will pick up our study in Jonah chapter 3, verse 4. Can you guys read this first slide for me, please? 
I just realized that I didn't pray. Well, let's pray. Yeah, so let's pause and let's pray. Father, we're asking for your spirit to lead this Bible study. We're asking for our hearts and our minds to be in positions of submission to whatever it is that you're going to say today. To whatever it is that you're going to do today, big or small, Lord, we're asking for you to move on this body. Corporately and individually, Lord, speak to us, Father. We stand before the mirror of Scripture, and we ask for you to reveal in us the things that you are going to prune and change as you sanctify in Jesus' name, amen. amen. So we just read verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city. <laughs> Jonah began to go into the city. Is there any evidence in verse 4 to support the perspective that Jonah's attitude continues to be negative? Are you, are you raising your hand? Hey, are you asking? Well, I mean, is it a rhetorical question? I'm trying to get you guys to think as you look at the text. What if we were to assess Jonah's effort? There you go. So we're looking at the text and we're asking the text to frame how it is that we think about what it is that the prophet's doing, right? Old Testament scholar Daniel Timmer observes that Jonah only traveled one day's walk into the city. Gold star for those who noticed that. Now he asked, could this infer that the prophet made little to no effort to cover the city of Nineveh in its entirety? I would say, just look back a couple verses and you'll see how large Nineveh was and then you'll see how marginal Jonah's effort was. <laughs> so I would say, this is probably more than a maybe, so let's put this on the table as some evidence against the prophet's bad attitude. And then let's see what else we can find. What about the proclamation that Jonah's making? I want to talk about the proclamation that Jonah's making. Dr. Richter notes that this would hardly qualify as a decent tweet, <laughs> let alone a sermon. How many times have you been in church and the preacher man said, this sermon caused Nineveh to just fall to their knees and cry out to Yahweh? I'm like, man, I look forward to the day when I can say, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight words in the English, five in the Hebrew, and the whole church just falls on their face and cries out to God. This would be like, I'm good. I'm retiring after this. <laughs> There's nothing better that could follow, right? <laughs> and then they go, oh, it didn't, it didn't really matter what Jonah said because the Spirit of God moved. Well, where's that in the text? Where's the miracle language in the text? Well, it's just inferred that God wanted that to happen, so that's what happened. Really? Where's that in the Bible? <laughs> Are you reading this into the text? We've got a prophet with a bad attitude and marginal effort. 
not even a decent tweet. So it's our responsibility, church, to ask the question, what's missing? What's missing? Immediately, three things stand out. First, there is no call to repentance. Second, there's no hope for deliverance. And third, there's no mention of Yahweh. What is the role of the prophet? <laughs> I mean, has anybody ever studied the prophets? All of them have the same function and purpose. To call Israel, or in this case, to call a pagan nation to repentance. No repentance, coming judgment. Repent, times of refreshing. And even if you don't repent, God is faithful. He's God is remnant. Anybody see any of that in Jonah's sermon? There's no call to repentance. There's no hope for deliverance. And there's no mention of Yahweh. Does anyone else find it odd that Jonah withholds the standard introductory formula, thus says the Lord? Mm, yeah. I mean, we've got a foreign prophet to the people of Nineveh speaking to a pagan people who decides to withhold the detail that he's been called to speak on the behalf of God. No, thus saith the Lord. No, thus saith Yahweh. No, or, no, the, no Yahweh's oracles to the people. Reminds me of the street preachers holding up the signs. Right? Scripture with no context. Yeah. Scripture with no context. How am I supposed to understand that? How does the mind of the natural man perceive that which is spiritual? I mean, this is odd, to say the very least. It's my opinion. That an honest assessment of Jonah's efforts in verse 4 offers more than enough evidence to support the perspective that Jonah's attitude is continually negative. What say you? Yeah. 40 days, yo. 40 days! And Nineveh shall be overthrown. You're all going to hell in a handbasket. Would you say it's the minimum he could have done without being overtly disobedient? Yeah. I would argue that exactly. But I mean, that's totally something I can identify with. Is this, is this reluctant obedience to God? We're still being crazy on But I mean, if the honest individual is sitting in the congregation or if the preacher is feeling honest today, they're going to look at this and they're going to go, I do this all the time. Yeah. <laughs> the severe mercy of God that we're even able to go <sighs> one more time. Jonah's also a known prophet. Actually. Known prophet? Like, people know who he is. Totally. Know what he's doing. Yeah, he's probably not known in Nineveh. It's five or six hundred miles from the northern kingdom. And it's fairly safe to say that although Assyria is conquering the known world, they would have had little to no interaction with this backwoods prophet. Remember, Jerusalem is not even an eighth of the size. I'm sorry, Jerusalem is the capital city, and he's from the northern kingdom, but Jerusalem being the largest city in Israel, 
is not even an eighth of the size of Nineveh as a whole. James, you have your hand raised. What's up? It's, it's something that um, was kind of confirmed of that one of the past couple of days was that what John did was a poor example of what God wanted to do when that's supposed to be encouragement to people. And that encouragement is also the mother tongue of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, we've got no idea what Jonah was supposed to say. If you look back again, I think in Jonah chapter 3, verse 2, he's supposed to speak the very words that Yahweh gives him. The words that Yahweh is going to put into his mouth. And then we get here, and we're looking at things that are missing, and we're wondering, how is Jonah's compliancy with the word of the Lord? And there leaves a lot to be questioned here. I think 40 is represented, too. Like, we, in our context of being so far removed they would have known that there was 40 days and 40 nights for the flood. So they would know that that's a trusting, a, a, a trial and a probation period. And to know 40 days overthrown, it's a judgment in the very sentence of, you know, because it, it doesn't matter where you're from, probably the flood would have been known yeah. for all, would have been, been oh, all yeah. those Oh yeah, read the story of Natural Happiness. Yeah, yeah. 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 read the Enuma Elish. Would have known what 40 days means in the destruction when when you have a prophet come whatever country absolutely 40 would have been a trigger word for destruction absolutely thinking about moses in a trial and testing period on top of sinai like we said think about jesus in the wilderness and all that spans in between those two interactions and think about trial and testing period and purification <laughs> being god's desire at the end of it right so you're absolutely right but was 40 days and 40 nights and so that as well in the 40s would have absolutely yeah. absolutely yes yeah. your pagan nation or a, a nation chosen by god absolutely so this is prophetic language Right. Totally, this is perfect. Yep. Yeah. So, and we're asking ourselves what's missing. And we've already talked about three, four things that are missing, right? There's the three things that I mentioned, and then there's the introductory formula that most all prophets utilized. Thus says Yahweh. So then you know that this person is an emissary of this God speaking on their behalf. Right? So we've got. The honest assessment that Jonah in his effort in verse 4 is, you know, it's contrary, I would say, to the heart of God. And, and I was going to ask Art if he read my manuscript tel te te telepathically this, this morning, because when he said what he said about Jonah, literally the next line is, at its best, Jonah's effort is minimal. At its worst, we could argue that Jonah is actually attempting to sabotage the mercy of God. Yet Nineveh believed, yo. Nineveh believed. Can you guys read this next slide, please? That's why I think he probably was known in Nineveh at some point because it took one eighth of the, the king to hear about him and to believe it. You know? Well, that's, yeah, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. One more question, though. What in the text gives you the idea that he didn't say exactly what God told him to say? Other than not saying, thus says the Lord, it, it too, it says, go and tell the and three says, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. There's, is there anything in the text that says that's not exactly what God called him to say? To go there according to the word of the Lord is to submit to the call of God for him to go. 
and he had to travel five to six hundred miles. To but he says it too. He says, "If you call out against the message that I tell you." That's right. So there's nothing in the text that says that the message that he gives isn't exactly the message he got. So to say that there's more is also an argument from silence, because we're working with what we've got. No, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I'm not saying from more. What if he said exactly what God told him to say? So. The argument then would be that God said, "Don't mention me, don't don't mention repentance, and don't mention deliverance." Yeah, no, no, it, 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 it. Okay. Yeah. Well, I would just say I would say survey the text of Scripture yeah. and how God speaks specifically the doom oracles against the surrounding nations, and then I would say, based on what you know about the character and the nature of God, and based on what you know about Jonah's character, ask yourself what's going on here. Yeah. I think it's fair for both sides. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I'm not, I'm just, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to make my case yeah, yeah. on the fact that Jonah's attitude is bad. Right? Yeah. yeah. And so what he said could potentially be the word of Yahweh. What he said could potentially not be the word of Yahweh. And so we have to ask these kinds of questions. What in the text says this? Right? And so, when we don't have more evidence to go on when we're reading vertically through a letter, then we open up the Bible horizontally and we say, okay, how has God spoken? What is God's normal purview? What is reflective of his character and nature? And then what do we see humanity doing? You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Because very often prophets have the ability to miss what it is that God is saying. Even, uh, even Ezekiel misses prophecies in the book of Ezekiel that he accredits to Yahweh and then he corrects them later on in the book. Yeah, and then Nathan gets it wrong with David. Yeah. What's that? And I said Nathan gets it wrong with David. And Nathan gets it wrong with David, exactly. So it's never God who misspeaks, but sometimes it's the prophet who either mishears or chooses to do something that he should not do. So, we're, we're looking at this passage right here. And the first thing we need to do is deal with the assertion that the people of Nineveh believed God. To properly do this, we need to ask the question, what did the author intend to communicate with this comment? Not what we think it means. If we could all have an opinion, the author is the one who has a mission and the author is the one who is intending to communicate something here. So that's the question we need to be asking. now. The first thing I want us to do is look at this passage in two different English translations. We're going to look at it in two different literal English translations. Okay? The ESV reads, and the people of Nineveh believed God. And the NASB reads, then the people of Nineveh believed in God. Okay. If I'm going to be honest, I see two very different messages. Yeah. Don't you find it interesting that the English translators of two highly acceptable literal English translations nuance this so differently? This teaches us that translation requires interpretation. If I'm going to be honest, like looking at things like this could potentially pose a struggle for people. Mm -hmm. We know from the text of the New Testament that even the demons believe. Yeah. 
There's just one problem. Their belief causes them to tremble. Their belief is a type of belief that sparks a physical response, but ultimately it lacks repentance. So now we have to ask the question, well, what is the outcome of the belief in Nineveh? Is it repentance or is it simply a physical response? Now, before we attempt to offer, I want us to consider the data. And I love what your questions were and how we were asking and like going back and forth on what does the text actually say? Because we need to consider the data that is in the Bible. It's our primary source. Jonah chapter 3 verse 4 is the only record we have of Jonah's message to the people in Nineveh. In verse 4, Jonah does not ask the Ninevites to change their religion. Nor does he seek to dethrone their gods. Think about the way that Moses spoke to Pharaoh. We could take it a step further. There's no indication in the book of Jonah at all that the Ninevites turned from their gods or that they made any sort of commitment to the God of Israel. So how are we supposed to understand the statement, Nineveh believed God? Well, it's my opinion, and I'm standing on the shoulders of scholars like John Walton here, who argue that the author was simply attempting to communicate that the message which Jonah brought from God was acceptable as the truth. Go ahead, Art. I, I'm sure you're probably going to address this. In Matthew and Luke, Jesus talks about the people in the Nineveh repented at Jonah's preaching. Yeah. And, and so it's easy to say, oh, well, that means they started following God. Yeah. The Hebrew term is shub, to turn from. The very cool nuance of the Hebrew language allows for it to be a turning to God and a turning to apostasy. And so if you can turn to God or to apostasy, and those are the spheres, you can turn to anything in between, right? So there is such a thing as partial repentance, and we will get to that. I did an entire sermon on this topic, and I talked about why I believe that the sailors and the Ninevites didn't repent and how we can, um, how we can bring that into right understanding with what it is that Jesus teaches in the New Testament. And I asked the question, does the text of Scripture give us any evidence that anyone will be speaking other than God at the great white throne of judgment? And the answer is no. There is one just judge, and who are we to judge our neighbor? And so the condemnation that they participate in is different from God's judgment. And the condemnation would be, we said, as one looking to the right or the left, like Israel, unrepentant Israel, looking to the right and condemning the Queen of Sheba, who we have no evidence that she ever repented, turning to the left and condemning. And then we have the Ninevites turning to the right or the left and condemning outwardly. And this matches the weeping and the gnashing of teeth in, in exegesis when you do your word studies. So the condemnation is what they participate in not the judgment, and their repentance would be partial in nature. You can turn from evil, turning to something other than God. And, yeah, I was going to get to this in this manuscript later, but we, we can talk about that right now. Nineveh believed God. How do we understand this, right? I said, most simply, 
we should understand that Jonah brought word from God and it was accepted by the people as truth. It wouldn't be difficult for a pagan pantheistic people to hear a prophet or a diviner give a foretelling or a foretelling and accept it. It's a natural part of their culture and their community. And so we have to understand that as modern students. Now, if this is the case, and Walton and scholars like Walton are correct, then we've got to ask the question, why? Like, what was it that caused Nineveh to be so receptive to the message of Jonah? Because this is like a story like none other. You know? This five words in Hebrew, eight words in English, Massive turning, right? So we've got to ask, has anybody ever read this story and like thought what was it that prepared the hearts of Nineveh for such a turning, for such a favorable response to the prophet? Well, before we answer this question, we need a reminder of where we're at in time and space. According to the text of Scripture, Jonah served as a prophet. He was a prophet from the northern kingdom. Here we are. In the northern kingdom. And he was working out his life and ministry during the reign of Jeroboam II. See 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 23 through 25 for this evidence. Now in accordance with our timeline, let's go to the next slide. We've dated the life and ministry of the prophet Jonah to the time of the early 8th century. So anywhere from 800 to 701 BC. Remember, it counts down, and then it begins to count up. So we believe that Jonah's life and ministry took place early 8th century. It's a little bit easier to look at and to navigate alongside of the other biblical characters. Now, I find it interesting that organizations such as the Armstrong Institute of Biblical Archaeology, alongside of Old Testament scholars like Douglas Stewart, they name Assurdan III as the Assyrian contemporary of Jeroboam II. So that means that while Jeroboam II is seated on the throne in the northern kingdom of Israel, Assurdan III is seated on the throne in Assyria. Now why is this important, saints? The Bible doesn't say anything about this, right? But let me tell you something. The original audience, they would have known all of this information. They would have known him. Who's the first president in America? Oh. You see how he just knows that? Were you alive during the time in the life of George Washington? So you've been taught your country's history. Ah, you see how that works? Not necessary to include every little detail because the backdrop and the audience's understanding of the backdrop is assumed. Our presuppositional brothers hate this. It's like, use only the Bible. You only need the Bible. Well, the Bible is a product of the culture that produced it. It was not for us. So, you know, you got to deal with that kind of stuff. So why is this important? Well, like I said, our first and primary source, which is the text of Scripture, teaches us that during the reign of Jeroboam, the northern kingdom was able to restore its borders. So they're under the thumb of the known world power Assyria, but during Jeroboam II's reign and during Assurdan III's reign, for some reason, the northern kingdom is able to extend its borders. 
Think that's good news for the nation of Assyria? Okay. Second, we have external sources which record catastrophic events such as enemy invasions into the land of Assyria, both floods and famines, to include a total solar eclipse, all of which would have been viewed as bad omens to the Assyrian Empire and its people. And guess what, guys? Every single one of these things happened during the reign of Assurdan III. At this point, in space and time, the nation of Assyria would have been vulnerable both physically and spiritually. What do you think one of the most busy days in our generation's history was in the church? 9-11. Say again? 9-11. Following 9-11. The day after the 12th and the Sunday following the 17th. You know why? Because catastrophe had struck. And because catastrophe had struck, it made the people of our nation vulnerable, both physically and spiritually. With all of these catastrophes going on, invasions of enemies, famine and flood, total solar eclipse, how do you think the people of Miramila are feeling? It's not far off. When you want to contextualize it, there's ways to contextualize it so that we can understand it. But we need to be aware of these things if we're going to be able to answer the question, why is Nineveh so receptive to the prophet? And I think these answers are a whole lot better than because that's what the Spirit wanted. Like, God works in the way that he created the universe. As much as, if not more than how he works apart from it. The miracles that we experience are not the majority. They're the minority. And so we have to know that God chooses to work in and through everything, even what appears not to be supernatural. Things like this. Now, if Jonah, in God's timing, arrived at Nineveh during or immediately following one of these disasters, i.e. these bad omens, then the favorable reaction of the people as seen in the text would be far more believable. Yes or no? Okay. It's almost as if God were tilling the soil through current world events to prepare the people of Nineveh for Jonah's proclamation. You look at what's going on around you, and then, look, by chance, some foreign prophet walks through the gates and starts to proclaim 40 days, and the city will be overturned. Having sifted through the data, both internally and externally, we can now see what it was that may have caused Nineveh to be so receptive to the message of Jonah. So saints, we dealt with verse 4 and 5a. Now we got to move on to assessing the outcome of Nineveh's belief. Was their reaction to the proclamation of Jonah's sign authentic in repentance, or was it just a panicked response to destruction? What do you think? Well, if you're thinking about what Art said, then you're like, spoiler alert. You know? But we still got to work our way through the text. 
Because in our opening this morning, we highlighted the reality that Jonah's efforts to proclaim the word of the Lord throughout Nineveh was minimal at best. One day's worth of travel would not allow for Jonah to reach the heart of Nineveh, let alone for to speak to all of its inhabitants. And yet Yahweh and how he designed the universe decided that the citizens of Nineveh would push the message forward. Think about it. You're a pagan. In a pagan society, you've got all these bad omens and you hear the word of the prophet. You think you're going to keep that to yourself? Is it a miracle that these people shared with one another what they had heard? No. It was natural that they would speak the very words that they heard. What they were unaware of was that the words that they heard were the words of the Lord. And they passed on the word of the Lord until it reached who? The king. I don't know about you, but I think that's super cool. Because apart from the prophet's full cooperation, the message moved forward. Can you guys read this next slide for me? The first thing that I want to comment on when we look at this verse is how politically savvy the ruler of this city is. I mean, think about it. Come on. This is political savviness right here. We already know that the Assyrian Empire is experiencing catastrophic events. Connect that to the reality that a foreign prophet has just made his way through a portion of your city calling for its destruction. And as the news reaches the throne room, he's immediately able to evaluate the political climate in his own backyard. And like any good leader in an act of solidarity with his people, he decides to join them. It's a good leader. This is what the whole city is already doing. Would it be good for me, for my numbers? Would it be good for the favor of my citizens if I responded in a way that was countercultural to what they're already doing? No, that's not going to win me any favor. And we're already being attacked and experiencing all these other bad omens. I'm just going to join them in what they're doing. I'm going to strive for unity in my city while we're being crushed. Is this repentance? As I look at verse 5 and 6, I've got to tell you, I don't see anything that is explicitly indicative of biblical repentance. Old Testament scholar John Walton writes that the idea of repentance is actually quite difficult to pin down in Mesopotamian culture. Remember, we're not dealing with the Jewish people of Israel. We're not dealing with the ancient Hebrew people. We're dealing with Mesopotamians, ancient Assyrians. When a pagan people such as the Ninevites would seek to appease a deity who, had dis, who they had disfavor with, how do you think they sought to bring favor back into accord with them? Sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth and ashes. Sacrifices, libations, offerings, supplications, prostrations, etc., etc. These were common actions in the pagan world as much as they were common actions in the world of Israel. It's what we should expect to see. Which means that it's probably jumping the gun to ascribe these acts as authentic repentance. 
Don't you think you should wait to see the fruit? Before you jump the gun and say that, that act is total authentic repentance. <laughs> Until the very next day, the person wakes up and does the same thing. That's a word for some of y'all in here. Y'all know you need to repent and change your behavior. And day after day, you wake up and you make the same stupid decision over and over. And then you guys cry about the spilled milk when you're the one that knocked it off the table. Yeah. My life is so terrible. No, no. Your decisions are just, you know what. <clears throat> and you make no effort. And you blame everyone else. And you point the finger. Yeah. Wake up! Yeah. That is not what God created you for. Right. Do you have the spirit? Maybe you need to do a tough inventory and ask. Maybe I don't. And maybe what I actually need to do is submit my heart and my mind to the Lord. For the first time. Yeah, right. As opposed to playing the game and trying to manipulate everybody into thinking that I'm doing what God has created me to do. Yeah. If we can't live it out, why are they going to believe it's worth giving it a shot? Yeah. Sure. Come on. Oh man, I saw him. He's doing a fast, super spiritual, man. I saw him during worship. That guy was on his knees. This other lady was on her face, totally spiritual. So sanctified. Man, I heard this person speaking in tongues. I wish I could do that. Maybe you should just walk in the gifts that God gave you. Because not all speak in tongues. Go read Corinthians. Man, that one prophesies. I wish I could prophesy. Well, maybe you're just supposed to be hospitable. We're working administrations. What's wrong with setting up the chairs in the church? Or heating up the coffee? What's wrong with serving in children's church? You know? That's just, that's just lowly, man. I want to be like that super spiritual person. The one that's out there casting out demons. You know, the greatest of these, the greatest of these, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, is the one who serves. And the way you're supposed to serve is in line with the gifts that God has given you. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Some seed, the, these, these verses here, let's go to the next slide. Some see these verses. He issued a proclamation. He published through Nineveh the decree of the king and his nobles. No man, no beast, no herd, no flock. Don't let him eat. Don't let him drink. Oh, so spiritual. Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Not just humans, but the animals too. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. Oh, man, I need to do that. Anybody see any turning to God in this? I mean, some people are like, look, Matt, 
Repentance, it's all over this passage. It's just seeping in it. It's just bathed in it. Like, ah. Like, come on, if you weren't convinced earlier, read this one more time with me. It's no longer just an act of solidarity by the king. He's escalated what the people were doing. The king has gone beyond that. And he's called the people to go beyond that with him. It's no longer the people of Nineveh, man. It's man and beast alike. It's not just fasting and sackcloth. The king instructed the people of Nineveh to pray. Call out mightily to God. Turn from the evil and violent way. Surely, man, surely this qualifies as repentance. Authentic repentance, man. This is what I would respond. I would say, slow down. Slow down and think with me. In that entire exchange, I read, I reread, I engaged. Now I'm asking, slow down and think with me. First, we need to be clear on this one point. The government does not have the authority to mandate any form of genuine repentance. If they can mandate repentance, they can mandate apostasy. So the government doesn't have that authority. This decree runs outside the purview of human authority. That's first and foremost. Second, we must remember that Jonah's proclamation included no mention of Yahweh. Third, Jonah never advised the king. He only traveled the day. He never made it to the king because he never made it to the king. This means the king has no idea which God he has mandated the people to call out to. Fourth, it's standard practice for pagans to pray. Anybody read 1 Kings chapter 18? Elijah facing off with the priests of Baal? Oh, this is a good one for the note-takers. Elijah says specifically, you call out to your God and all call out to Yahweh. Do we know how the world, sorry, the word God, is it Elohim? It is gonna, Elohim. It is all, we're going to slide, it's all Elohim in chapter 3. In chapter 3, the personal name of Yahweh, El Shaddai, Adonai, El Elroy, none of it's used. It's the generic term for God. It's a great question. It's standard practice, yo, for these to pray. When Elijah is facing off with these priests, they're calling out so mightily, they're cutting themselves. And he's just chilling, going, maybe you should try a little harder. I think your God may be on the commode. <laughs> Maybe he's sleeping, you call out louder. The more mighty they called out, did Paul answer? <laughs> this is why reading the text horizontally is so important, saints, when we're actually asking what's happening in the scripture and we have very little detail. Standard practice for the pagans to pray. Five. Jonah chapter 3 offers us zero evidence on a textual level that the people of Nineveh knew who they were calling out to. Excellent question. Elohim, Elohim, Elohim. (laughs) 
6, we have historical evidence that the people of Assyria were willing to pray to any god. Listen to this. The text is small because I needed to fit it on the screen. But I want you guys to listen to this, okay? Some of y'all pray like this. And it needs to stop. May the wrath of the heart of my God be pacified. May the God who is unknown to me be pacified. May the goddess who is unknown to me be pacified. May the known and unknown God be pacified. May the known and unknown goddess be pacified. The sin which I have committed, I know not. Oh, uh, you know. Just like I know. Well, there are sins of omission and commission, but once it's brought to light, yo, I know what I'm doing wrong, and I shouldn't be doing that thing. The misdeeds which I have committed, I know not. A gracious name may my God announce. A gracious name may my goddess announce. A gracious name may my known and ungod, unknown God announce. A gracious name may my known and unknown goddess announce. Pure food have I not eaten. Oh, fasting! <laughs> Clear water have I not drunk. Oh, oh. An offense against my God I have unwittingly committed. A transgression against my goddess I have unwittingly done. Oh Lord, my sins are many. Great are my iniquities. My God, my sins are many. Great are my iniquities. The sins which I have committed, I know not. The iniquity which I have done, I know not. The offense which I have committed, I know not. The transgression I have done, I know not. Does that sound like accountability? Does that sound like repentance? The Lord in the anger of his heart has looked upon me. The God in, in the wrath of his heart has visited me. The goddess has become angry with me and hath grievously stricken me. The known or unknown God has straightened me. The known and unknown goddess has brought affliction upon me. I sought help, but no one taketh my hand. And I wept, but no one came to my side. Sound like sitting in sackcloth and ashes to you? I lamented, but no one hearkens to me. I'm afflicted. I'm overcome. I cannot look up. Sound like he's got his face in the dirt. Unto me, unto my merciful, uh, unto my merciful God I turn. I make supplication. I kiss the feet of my goddess and I call before her. How long, my God, how long, my goddess, until thy face be turned toward me? How long, known and unknown God, until the anger of thy heart be pacified? How long, known and unknown goddess, until thy unfriendly heart be pacified? Mankind is perverted and has no judgment. Of all men who are alive, who knows anything? They do not know whether they do good or evil. O Lord, do not cast aside thy servant. He is cast into the mire. Take his hand. The sin which I have sinned, turn to mercy. The iniquity which I have committed, let the wind carry away. My transgressions tear off like a garment. My God, my sins are seven times seven. Forgive my sins. My goddess, my sins are seven times seven. Forgive my sins. Known and unknown God, my sins are seven times seven. Forgive my sins. I feel like I need to pray after yeah. Yeah. Hannah, you say it sounds like Davidson. I would say there's a lot of uh, 
yeah, similarities across the board, right? Yeah. But also a lot of generic. Exactly. Not just do we look for the similarities of what's generic, we need to identify the distinctions. In Yahwism, or in Christianity, you do not pray to other gods, and you do not pray to other goddesses. In Christianity, or in Judaism, God was clear. Thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do this. Do this, and you will be blessed. Don't do this, and you will be cursed, right? So, like, there's a, well, for all the similarities, for all of the ambiguity, there are clear distinctions. Go ahead, Josh. What's weird to think about that still exists today totally. in polytheistic cultures. Uh, I spoke to a missionary that said, if you evangelize there, they'll easily accept your God as a God, but not the God. Yep. Absolutely. This right here, this potential prayer to every God, this prayer was found on a tablet which dates from the mid-7th century BC. The original prayer is in Sumerian. It was found near Sumer, and it probably dates somewhat earlier. Do we believe that the events of the New Testament happened when the documents were written, or did the events of the New Testament precede the documents that were written, and did the documents accurately record what had happened? Yeah. You think they can't do their own history? Just because the, the, the tablet was found 7th century, people are like, oh, well, this is after the life of Jonah. Yeah, but it's those Syrian people in Mesopotamia, and they probably were praying this long before it was actually scribed. Yeah. No different than our texts. So you got to be careful that you don't trip yourself up by putting yourself in a pigeonhole by trying to argue something like that, because then you're going to have someone like me come along and poke you. <laughs> So, you know, we've looked at six different points. Finally, I'm going to argue my seventh. In the light of the previous data, which we've just offered, one may easily argue that the reform decreed by the king is grounded in a type of social reform over and above spiritual reform. One need not turn to Yahweh specifically in order to turn from evil and violent behavior. This is where Bart was going earlier. Check it out. How many of us know previous alcoholics who are now dry drunks? Or <laughs> what? Dry drunks. That's what they call them in AA. You're a dry drunk if you don't drink because in AA, there's no such thing as healing. You are forever an alcoholic. The old man does not die in AA. The old man lives forever. There is no new, there is no new creation in AA. So if you are a dry drunk in AA, you recognize the evil that your drinking did, i.e. producing calamity in your life and in the lives of those around you, and you turn from that evil, and you turn to your higher power. So, so you need not turn to Yahweh to turn from evil behavior. So if repentance is turning from and turning to God, they did half of it. Right? I would say partial repentance is what we're looking at here. Yeah, and part of it is on Jonah. <laughs> you know, like, we've got partial repentance here. What about the murderers? What about the rapists that go to jail, serve their sentence, become aware that in prison the behavior that they were exuding was not good behavior, that they need to turn from that behavior. They don't ever recapitulate that behavior. They get out and they live productive lives in society, but they never give their life to God. Is that a turning from the evil that they once committed? Yeah. Is it a whole turning to God? No. No. So it's a shub. It's a turning from, but it's not a turning to the one who can rescue and deliver us. 
It's for these reasons and others that I don't have time to mention that we should reject the idea that the people of Nineveh repented and turned to God. Can you guys read this next slide for me, please? Look at the this verse marshals more evidence against the prophet. It marshals more evidence that Jonah's effort was marginal at best. Had Jonah been clear in his proclamation, had Jonah actually traveled throughout the entire city, had Jonah made it a point to speak to the king, There'd be no need for this question. Who knows? We did a whole sermon on Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 1 through 12. And we know what God will do when he calls calamity against the nation and they repent, he relents of his calamity. And we know that when God blesses and they apostatize, he relents from his blessing and he extends cursing. We know this. Had Jonah been clear, there would have been no need for this question. Chapter 4, verse 2 is clear. Jonah knew, and Jonah understood the character and the nature of God. This is why I fled to Tarsus, Lord. Because I knew you. Had the message Nineveh received specified repentance as an option the people would have no need for doubt. What kind of gospel are you guys preaching? Mm. You mentioned the street preacher earlier. Is there mention of repentance and hope for deliverance? Is it a clear communication that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life? Or is there sign or their message muddled and ambiguous? It's not a full picture of the gospel. It's the good news. It's the goodness of God that brings people to repentance. How often do we see the bad news? Well, they won't be able to know the good news if I don't tell them the bad news. Okay. They won't be able to see any of it because they won't hear you. Yeah. They just won't have the light. Yeah. It's like they can't see. But one of my favorite lines from August Burns Red is no one learns from someone they hate, your mouth is like a grenade. Powerful. No one learns from someone they hate, your mouth is like a grenade. So what's your tactic, church, in preaching that, the gospel? I, I think it's something, you know, like that was, uh, I, I read something yesterday, and when I read it, it struck me that how many times are we speaking to people as you sinner instead of you chosen of God. And I think the perspective of preaching the gospel to, of, to their sins instead of to who God calls them to be is, is, contra is contrary to, to the gospel when we don't do it in the right manner. Because Christ spoke to the things that God was speaking and the things God and he did what God was doing. And so when we preach the gospel, we're not preaching the gospel to the things God is speaking over them and to the things that God is doing for them in their lives. Now, I'm not saying that he's going to agree with their sin 
and, their, and, and all that stuff. But, of course not. But I think that we have to have a shift of a mindset to look at people and go, you are chosen by God. You are created in his image, and he has done this, and he and, and this is who you are in Christ, or this is who Christ Jesus is for you to truly live the scroll that God has written in the heavens. Romans chapter 5, right. right there. While we were at enmity with God, Christ died for us. You know, that's Romans chapter 5 right there. Man. That's the best news, you know. While we were still sinners and at enmity with God, Christ willingly got up off the throne and put on flesh so that he could lay his life down for the whole of humanity. And the opportunity for you to be in right relationship is there. And now the gospel has been preached. You've been made aware. Now you have a choice to make. Turn. Don't turn partially. Turn totally to God. And he will make you new. Right? I mean, that's so much better than, you know, you lie, you cheat, you steal. You know, like, you murder. Oh, I never murdered. But you admitted these other three things that you're wrong, so you're a sinner. So then hell would go on down the You know, like, oh, okay. You know, we went over that on, on Easter with James, you know. So... So we're looking at this text, right? We're looking at what's going on here. We're asking these questions. We know that chapter chapter 4, verse 2, Jonah was absolutely in the know on the nature and the character of Yahweh. We talked about if Nineveh had, had received a message that specified repentance, then there'd be no need for this question. So does verse 9 function as evidence against the prophet of God? That was my question in verse 4. That's my question in verse 9. Does this reveal that Jonah was intent on sabotaging the mercy of God? To answer this question, we have to ask, what was the purpose in Jonah's sticking around to see what would happen? Watch it burn. Watch it burn, exactly. Jonah's desire was to see a recapitulation of Sodom and Gomorrah. Bring down the fire, Lord! And y'all are like, oh, I would never do that. Stop it! <laughs> Stop it. Even the two disciples were like, Lord, do you want us to call down fire on them? <laughs> How often are we watching the news going click? Man, I'm so glad I'm not like that person. Oh, Pharisee. Oh, Pharisee. There's no hope for that person to repent. Oh, you forgot where you came from. Just as I sometimes forget we all forget. So does verse 9 function as evidence against the prophet? You know, Jonah's heart was to see the city of Nineveh and its people destroy him. However, God had different plans. Can you guys read this next slide? When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented a disaster and made that what he did to them, and he did not do it. I love this. God relented of the disaster that see, he said he would do. That says Yahweh. Now, is that Yahweh or is that Elohim? It's Elohim. So this is still Elohim. Mm -hmm. In 9 and 10? There's no use of Yahweh in the chapter, chapter 3. Oh, wow. Now, here's the deal. This is the narrator speaking. Yeah. Okay? The narrator is different than the pagan king. And we need to know that the narrator in Hebrew writing, just like the narrator in New Testament writings, is omniscient 
because they're writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. They're not omniscient in all, but they're omniscient in all of the context that deals with the story that they're writing. How kind is it of God to, even though in a pagan manner they re repent, because there was no direction to repent correctly because his prophet didn't include it in the prophecy. That's right. And so God still relented because he <clears throat> and saw that their heart was trying to repent, but they had no right repentance because they didn't have right direction from what God wanted to release to them for a complete in a day One of the best treatments on the book of Jonah is called the severe mercy of God. And it angers humanity. Talk to somebody. You know, you're telling me that you think Jeffrey Dahmer could be in heaven because he repented and got baptized? Oh man, there's worse people than Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> you know? Like, come on, man. If there's no grace for him, then there's no grace for me. If there's no grace for me, then there's no grace for you. Because grace is unmerited favor. And we all need it. Yeah. This is why we're not supposed to judge one another horizontally. The standard is God for all have sinned, for all have missed the mark, all have fallen short of the glory of God, all need Christ. Period. You know, one commentator... On this passage notes that the that God's mercy is not subject to human manipulation. It's not. Your theology, my theology, has no authority over God's final decision. And you may say, well, I've worked out my theology and it's good. It's healthy. It's still not authoritative over God. Jonah would have said he had his theology worked out. So just think about that the next time you got your, you know what's in a twist and you're going to task with somebody. Good. I'm trying. I'm trying. Is this similar, is this similar to um, uh, like people who have never heard the gospel yet are looking to that higher power? Yeah, that, yeah. So this is a sermon for another day, but I embrace natural theology. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies declare his handiwork. And so here's the deal. If you're going to look at me and say that my theology minimizes the glory of God to the degree that it is not enough to save someone, I'm just going to remind you that that's your theology. Go read Isaiah. The glory of God fills the heavens and the earth. The glory of God is on display in the intricate creation and the design of our universe. All of these things have led people to Christ. Yes. So no matter how hard Jonah tried, he could not sabotage the merciful will of God. I love this. James Bruckner writes that the enduring truth on display in Jonah chapter 3 is that compassion, compassion, say that word, compassion, compassion. is a primary attribute of God. I think that we can all agree that the Ninevites lacked some vital information. That's what Leslie was just saying. Information that was intentionally withheld from them by the prophet of God. That's what Leslie was just saying. And yet God saw what they did and considered it to be enough. God responded, saints. Just have a bit of a question. Good. What is the highest definition in the of the old woman? 
So the, the Hebrew word is nashan, okay? And nashan is like shub, okay? And uh, let me, I got this, that's a great question. I got this right here because I know you guys are going to ask these kinds of questions. All right, here we go. To be sorry, to console oneself, to repent, to regret, to comfort and be comforted, to be sorry, to be moved to pity, to have compassion, to rue, to suffer, to grieve. The theological workbook of the Old Testament translates Nephal 38 times as repent. The majority of these instances refer to God's repentance, not man's. However, the word most frequently employed to indicate man's repentance is shu, meaning to turn from sin to God. Unlike man, under who the conviction of sin feels genuine remorse and sorrow, God is free from sin. Yet the scriptures inform us that God repents. He relents or changes his dealings with men according to his sovereign purposes. When Naham is used of God, the expression is an anthropomorphic or anthropotolic type term. See Jeremiah chapter 18, specifically verse 7 through 10, which is a striking reminder that from God's perspective, most prophecy, excluding messianic predictions, is conditional upon the response of man. That's straight out of the theological workbook of the Old, Test the, of the Old Testament. And uh, what I gave you before on the definition side came out of the Brown Driver Briggs lexicon, which is the gold standard lexicon for the Hebrew language. It's not the Strong's. These are lexical um, books that are written by academic scholars who are prime in their field. Bruce Walt, he is one of the ones who translates and does the work of the theological work of the Old Testament. So it's a great question. Does that answer? So we're talking about how the mercy of God is not subject to human manipulation. We're talking about how God responded. And his response, what was it, saints? It was mercy Great. over judgment. Yeah. If it's a generic term for God, why did the interpreters capitalize G? That's a great question. That's a great question. If I was on the translation team, I tell you. <laughs> you know? Elohim is, so this is what we, this is what we're constantly reminding one another around here. Look, Yahweh is Elohim. Yahweh is the personal name of God, and he is Elohim. Elohim is a name for the plurality of divine beings. And some divine beings are worshipped as gods, lowercase g, right? So Yahweh is Elohim. Not all Elohim are Yahweh. So it's a great question. Why did they capitalize it? For in this context, I would say because the narrator is speaking and he knows which God he is speaking of. But if we go back to the previous one and, and uh, go back to six and seven, yeah, you know, they did the same thing here, right? And I would argue that they're not crying out to Yahweh as they did today, you know? But you've got different perspectives. You've got different interpretations of the book of Jonah. You all have heard preachers preach. Oh man, Nineveh repented, the sailors repented, come on down to the altar, take a knee and say the prayer, invite Jesus into your heart, which isn't in the Bible, but do that anyways, <laughs> and then we're going to see you saved. It doesn't matter what you do for the rest of your life, you're heaven bound, you've got your fire insurance, baby, you're in. Right? Everybody's heard that, right? It's terrible. It's terrible, that's not, the, that's not what the gospel teaches. 
So to answer to answer your question, I don't have the answer to this question, but I'm reading uh, Eisner's book, The Unseen Realm, yep. and there is a lot of information as to why he may or may not have used that particular mm -hmm. um, term for God. Um, there, there is a cultural belief that when they use that term, it wasn't specifically talking about he didn't he grew it was correct he's one god who's referring to uh, holy council or other gods that anyway haven't finished the book yet but there's a heck of a lot no it's a great book yeah. and i would i would suggest that everybody read them it's it's an excellent resource remember that according to the bible yahweh is the god of gods yeah. remember that yahweh according to the bible is god most high What's that? El. El. Yeah, El Elohim, El Elyon. Yeah. And remember that El is also the name of plenty of pagan deities. <laughs> what do you think the Hebrews were doing when they're like, we're going to use this name? Hebrew language isn't the oldest language, and it's definitely not God's language. God speaks all languages. <laughs> he doesn't have a primary mother tongue. I have a question for you. So in the, in the first chapter, they use um, Yehovah. And in the first chapter, they used Elohim all the way up until the very last, the sailors feared Yahweh. Yeah. Okay. So, so they have, and, and the, the turning point for the sailors was um, where they use Yahweh. When he said, I am a Hebrew of, and my God is Yahweh Elohim, he's actually, he, he said, the Lord God. And so, yeah. Who made both sea and dry land. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah. and so that's how these pagan pantheists, who Josh, you're perfect, perfect compliment. They'll accept your God as one of the one of the many gods. They just won't accept your God as the God of gods. There's no problem for the sailors on the boat to go, oh well, if Jonah's God is the cause of the storm, then we'll just pray to Jonah's God. Shotgun blast, pray to them all. Baal, Shamash, you know Marduk. Let's pray to Yahweh too while we're at it. One of them's gonna stop this thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> Like when you actually look at the names of God being used through Jonah, yep. there's very little faith. There's no faith, I would say. Yeah. There's only the external, which yeah. is why when we were going through this today, I was asking, was it a physical response or was it authentic repentance? Because all types of people in this room have themselves put on physical displays of inauthentic repentance, mm -hmm. yeah. just like all people out there have. Only some of us hopefully everyone in this room has actually embraced authentic repentance by turning their life to Christ. So we're looking at this, right? And we're getting ready to wrap up here. We said that, let me see here, sorry. Yeah, we said God responded and his response was mercy over judgment. Are we aware that God's pronouncements through his prophets do not obligate him to courses of action from which he cannot turn. Mm -hmm. If you don't believe that, then you believe that the sovereign is capable of being manipulated by man. So let me say that one more time. God's pronouncements through his prophets do not obligate him to courses of action from which he cannot turn. God relented of the disaster that he said he would do, and he did not do it. So, but he changed his mind. He changed his mind, he changed his actions, and he changed his plan. Yeah. Or he determined how that word was translated to. Yeah, because, sure. And you, like you said, it could go yeah. either way. Of the overturning, overturning disaster. Overturn. And yeah. so he determined yeah. how the outcome would be of that. 
Yeah. And everybody's got to wrestle with that themselves because there's a lot of people in here who don't like the idea that God can change his mind. <laughs> and they argue his omniscience doesn't allow him to change his mind. And I like to take them right to John chapter 11, and I like to say, did Jesus really weep, and did he feel compassion for the one that he loved? Well, why would he weep and feel authentic compassion if he just knew he was going to raise him from the dead? You can't have it both ways. He doesn't get to feel one thing and do one thing and not feel the other and do the other. So it's my favorite place because Jesus is God in the flesh. That's my favorite place to take him. If Jonah wanted to use that, that language that he used when he was going to the city, uh, would that have made him a false prophet because that didn't take place? So does that make life? So this is a great question. Would Jonah be qualified as a false prophet? No, he would not be. If we go back to Deuteronomy and we look at the qualifications for a false prophet, the only time they proclaim something and it doesn't come to pass is when they're proclaiming something that doesn't come to pass in the name of another God, and they're trying to entreat the people of Israel to leave the worship of Yahweh to follow a false God. And so I'm wondering if that's why he used that very specific language. Yeah, I mean, these are the questions. Nate asked a brilliant question early on in the sermon. Like, where's the evidence that he didn't actually say what God said? And I would say, well, for that, I would have to look horizontally, not vertically, you know? And so there, I mean, look, I haven't figured this book out. Yeah. yeah. Well, my point is, is that maybe that was exactly what he was supposed to say because God knew it was not. Should have been. Not to come to Yeah. Yeah. You know? So it's just it's just a wonderful, it's just a wonderful deep book. Look, the book of Jonah is not, we say this all the time in the series, the book of Jonah is not a kid's story, yo. Yeah. Like, look, you come to the story and you think you know it, and then boom, it's like, oh, have you considered this? Boom, have you considered this? I had my whole world turned upside down in learning to, to, to prepare to preach this. This was one of the more harder sermons that I had to write because I was like, oh, man, you know, like for a, the majority of my Christian life, which is, the, which, is not, which is the minority of my entire life, but for the majority of my Christian life, I was behind it like, the sailors repented, <laughs> you know, like, the price is right, and you look at it. And then I questioned. What, what's that? Because you didn't question. I didn't question. Yeah. I didn't study the scholars. I didn't look at the original language. I just read it, and I was like, that's my interpretation. And then I heard a pastor say it, so, you know, it's probably true. And then, boom. I was totally lost. But God can use that interpretation of the, of the story of Jonah to save people. So could I be wrong? I'm open to the fact that I could be wrong and that I could be teaching this entire book wrongly. And you guys are suffering through it. <laughs> That's the mercy of God on my life because he's not vaporizing me in the midst of me twisting and contorting his word. I don't think I'm doing that. I'm, I'm actually convinced of this, but do we see the, how the severe mercy of God is unfolding in our own lives? Yeah. All right, so we're going to finish with communion today. Hey, Matt. Yeah. I'd like to share something real quick. Go ahead. Forgive me if I start crying, but many of you know my brother Kent um, celebrating 29 years of drug today. Um, you, you, you understand why that's such a big deal, too. We're at seven and a half years of no alcohol and 12 years since he's been baptized, and I think it's just goes perfectly with what we're going over today. Yeah. It's so beautiful for me. I just want to share that with you guys, because I'm going to go yelled. Hanging in. We see the severe mercy of God in our lives. We see it in the lives of your brother, Kent. I know Kent, man. I look at him, he's tattooed like me, and I'm like, man, I know that guy. <laughs> you know, I know that guy's been to prison, man. I know that guy's 
oh, like, I think he's OD'd before, right? Yes. He has OD'd. I know he's relapsed, and now he's walking the straight and the narrow. And God didn't cut him off, and God didn't say, you out-sinned my grace. God said, I still have something for you. And when he finally woke up to the truth of the scriptures, he was like, oh, I'm a new man. Yeah. And it was the life, death, and resurrection of Christ that secured that for Kent and secured it for all of us. Yeah. And Jonah is pointing to the cross going, pay attention. Pay attention. God is merciful. So we're going to finish with communion. I want to invite you guys to stand up. I want you guys to consider the severe mercy of God in your own lives as you come to the table and you prepare to take the Lord's Supper. Yeah, come on down. Sure. You can come on down for this. What's your turn? Let me see if I can tune this real quick. Thank you. Rob, you're, you're welcome. Thank you, I just restrung it, so if it slips. I don't sing very well, but I want you guys to worship with me before we take communion. Go ahead and stand to your feet. Let's do that again. stands for you. I am blameless in your sight. My history is written. We know that you delight Hallelujah, right? 
Jesus here, everybody. Fear cannot be found in you. And there will never be a Somebody say never. You're uncertain about the ones you choose. Yes, Lord, we know. We know that you before we take the elements. So I will wake and spend my days loving the one who has raised me from death to life from right to making all things beautiful. I will wake and spend my days That's a life, rocks around, you're making all things beautiful, and you shall Thank you, Lord, for your mercy, of that mercy child, so Oh, yes, we know that you delight, you shall Sing that with me one more time. We know that you delight showing mercy. In lives of mercy, child, As they were reclining at the table with our Lord, oh, what an event to look forward to, amen? Yeah. As they were reclining at the table with our Lord, he said, this this is my body, broken for you, take and eat. Father, thank you for the body that you sacrificed, for the blood that you shed so that we could be reconciled to you. When he was done, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out, the blood of the new covenant. As often as you drink of this, and as often as you eat of this, do this in remembrance of me, take and drink. Father, we thank you that we have the opportunity to gather here, unpersecuted, undistracted, unbound by time, Lord. Yeah. Thank you that we have the courage and the boldness of the people in this room to speak up and to speak out during the sermon and to ask their questions and to pose their challenges. 
What a place where we know that diversity is welcomed because the non-negotiable thing is that you are the way, you are the truth, and you are the life. We know that no man comes to you except through Christ. We know that we have sinned. We know that we have fallen short of your glory, God. But we know that we can be put to death in a death like yours. And we can be raised to newness of life in a life like yours. Yes, God. Thank you that you have come. And we know that you will return to consummate what you inaugurated in your life and ministry, Jesus. And so my prayer right now for the church, Father, is that we would leave here knowing that we are emissaries of the name of God. And that we would not be like Jonah, willfully withholding the goodness of God from the people who need it most. But that we, who are spirit-filled, would take the light of Christ into the dark world and watch the darkness flee. Because we know that the darkness has not overcome. Father, each person in this room who has been born again, who has placed their faith in you, Today, Father, bless their efforts for showing up this morning. When they could have been anywhere, to God, they chose to be here. Thank you for this church. Father, thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your son. You are great and you are great to be praised. We say all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.